What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the conversation here on TYT. I am your sometimes host, Francesca Fiorentini, and I'm excited for today's show because we have two guests. We're going to give us a little bit of an inside look at what's happening ever since the January 6th attack on the Capitol building, what's happening in DC security wise, and give us a sense of what it feels like on the ground. My first guest is a the DC Bureau Chief. I've got their information, hang on, hang on one second, let me redo this. <laughs> My first guest is the DC Bureau Deputy Editor of Business Insider and also an adjunct professor at American University School of Communication. Please welcome Elvina Nawaguna. Hi, Francesca. Thank you. Hey. Thank you for being here. So you wrote this article because you actually spoke with some of the staff members at the Capitol building who have not been given the limelight, right? Whether it's you know Congress, senators, representatives, even police. But then there are the janitorial staff, people who are were in the building at the time of the attack. What was it like to speak to them? What did they tell you about where they were when all this happened? Yeah, so we all watched that day in horror, just seeing this place that we've always thought is one of the safest in the capital get completely taken over by an angry mob of Trump supporters. And as we were watching and just seeing things get worse and worse, one of the things that I thought about is who's gonna clean up that when when we were starting to see the images of how bad that was. I've been I've been a fast food employee before and one of the jobs that I had to do was clean the bathrooms sometimes after people who have been, you know, horrible to you. So I kept thinking, <laughs> my God, that must be horrible. And and then it turns out my colleague Kayla Epstein was thinking the same thing. And so we thought, well, let's go up there and see what it's like and talk to the people who actually clean up, the people who fix the furniture, the people who, uh, you know, the custodial and labor staff at the Capitol. Yes. And yes. So we did indeed go there and it was a few days later. The thing that shocked us was just how clean and spotless the Capitol was. If you had not seen what had happened on the news, you would have to, you know, you would have to be intentional about finding the hints. You know, of, of course, there were still, you know, broken glass windows, doors boarded up, but the, you know, at first glance, you would not know. And so we just walked the hallways and found uh, the people who were doing now regular cleaning up by that time. And had to earn their trust because they had been told you cannot talk to the press. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we had to guarantee them we could not use their names. We didn't even describe what uniform they were wearing because you can identify who works for the architect of the Capitol and who works for the sergeant of arms just by the colors of their uniform. And so wow. it was building trust and letting them know that we know everyone has been focused on the lawmakers and everybody has been focused on the reporters, but your voice matters too and we want you to be heard. Um, and it, it was uh, it was it was a very for me it was heartbreaking to see the interview later on after it had been printed. At that point, I was just a reporter trying to get people's stories. Um, yeah, and and one of one of the first people that I talked to, he hadn't been on the hill that day, but he uh, and stop me if I'm just going over you. He hadn't been on the hill that day, but he he watched things unfold on TV and he saw his colleagues. On TV cleaning up, and he said it felt bad. It was degrading 
yeah, to see yeah. my colleagues doing that, uh, knowing very well that the people who are attacking the capital, if they had found a black man, you know, they they were very very they were very aware of the racial animus that partly was driving the people who are coming to the capital. Right. And and in your reporting, you write that much of the Capitol staff who work in the janitorial services or, um, you know, having to fix these broken windows, they are black and brown. They're black and Latino, um, and and that what that was not lost on the workers either. So tell me a little bit about about that. Um, yeah. So first of all, DC is, is chocolate city. City because it has a very large black population, but also the neighboring suburbs, PG County, and a lot of the people that I talked to either lived within DC or lived in PG County, Maryland, or some parts of Virginia that you know, and they commute in. Um, yeah, and so one guy told me like his entire office, the entire group of people he works with, are black, and they had seen you know some of the most painful symbols being brought to the capital there were confederate flags there was gallows and the news and those those are painful symbols if you're african american and um just knowing very well what that means to them and then having to come in the next day and clean up after the same people that brought those symbols into the capital. Yes. Um, one, one, you know, should, should have been Ted Cruz things. cleaning up all that. I apologize. That is my role to say you are a serious reporter. I will say it should have been Ted Cruz cleaning up the feces off of Nancy Pelosi's desk or wherever it was. <laughs> Your show, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it was uh, one of one of the things that stood. This one of the the quotes that still you know resonates with me. Not resonates, but that you know still comes back to me is this this one gentleman that I talked to, and he said, um, you know, the the mob the white supremacists that you saw in the Capitol that day. Do you think they were the only ones? And I asked him, what do you mean? And he said, I'm used to cleaning after white supremacists. And he said, some of the lawmakers have some, you know, have done and said racist things. And he has to go to work every day. And for him, it wasn't that just that one day. It was seeing weeks and weeks of lawmakers parroting um, false statements. Try help, you know, trying to um, disqualify votes of people in majority black cities. And yeah. so for him, for this one man, it wasn't just that day. That day was uh, times 10, but he'd gone to work every day, very aware of some of the views of some of the lawmakers that walk the hallways of Congress. Mm -hmm. That is, that's frightening and also very. I mean, it's kind of no surprise, right? I think that the most interesting thing that we that has come out of this, many interesting things, but one of them that has come out of this attack is the ways that we understand that all of those um, racist elements in broader society are playing out on a very minute level within the capital itself, whether it's in the custodial staff or within um, the police that are there as well. I know that, um, and I don't know if you can speak to any of this, but did those custodial staff members also know a bit about some of the um, racist remarks and um, sort of flags that had been raised about racist police officers within the Capitol Police itself. Because there were a number of incidents and reports from police officers, black police officers in the Capitol who were like, this is going on and it's not okay. And those weren't actually addressed. So one of the things that 
uh, that came up from actually everybody, almost everybody that I talked to was, you know, we we just had a very intense summer of you know racial tensions and fights for racial justice, and and you they had seen how the protesters had been handled in those situations, and watching I think the rest of the country and obviously you know some of that information has changed as we get to know more about what happened, but the reality is that. The protesters were very, you know, very easily, very easily made it past police, you know, mm-hmm. whether it was poor preparation or something else. For a lot of people in the black community and a lot of the, the people that we talked to, that was there was a stark contrast between what they know would have happened if it was a majority black group of people breaking into the Capitol um, and what they saw. And this one guy said that if it were black people, we know that we would not have come out alive, but we know better than to try to attack the capital, right? Yeah. Um, another thing that a lot of them said was that for them, this was like 9-11, those who, have, who had worked there for more than 20 years, it was like 9-11 was the time they were most scared. But this time it felt a little bit personal. It felt a little bit like they were in some ways a direct target while 9-11 was you know, the country, but this time it was, they were coming for me and then I have to clean up after them the next day. Yeah. Going forward, I know that um, you write that Sherrod Brown um, is introducing legislation uh, to honor the capital custodial workers. But what is, is there any effort to rectify the situation, to put the minds of these workers at ease, um, to to actually take seriously any concerns that they do have if let's say a congressperson treats them in in, in a disrespectful or racist way? At this point, and at, at least at, at the time I was talking to them, they were not aware of that. But the the office of the architect of the Capitol told us that they they do have a program where you can go. You don't need an appointment, and and there's some kind of support system. Whether the the employees are aware and reminded of that resource is another question altogether. I don't know, and I and I and we know. That, that Senator Sherrod Brown is going to introduce a resolution, but resolutions are just a statement. They're not; they don't really do anything. They're they're toothless. So um, the question right. would be, what happens next? And and I, I, it's anyone's guess on that. Yes, we're looking forward to a lot of censuring and resolutions that honor, but we want action. I think after something as traumatizing and awful for our democracy is what happened. Um, thank you so much for speaking, Elvina Nawaguna. Please check out her work um, on Business Insider. Uh, and thank you for speaking to those folks and really lifting up their voices at a time when they're largely being erased from the narrative. It was a pleasure talking with you, Francesca. Have a wonderful day. You too. Welcome back to the conversation. I'm Francesca Fiorentini. So in Continuing to discuss the fallout of January 6th and everything that happened. Um, one of those things was the presidential inauguration of Joe Biden, which was unprecedented in a lot of ways. And my next guest was there and went through the entire surreal experience of being there and, and is going to tell us more about the inauguration and some uh, red flags that he has reported on. He's a senior Washington correspondent for Business Insider. And he also before working at Business Insider served as editor at large for the Center for Public Integrity, a nonprofit investigative news organization in Washington DC. Please welcome Dave Leventhal. Dave, 
Thank you so much for being here. You have this great piece that talks basically talks everyone through what happened when you just when you went to go cover the inauguration. So um, tell us about the kinds of security that you had to go through um, and whether you think this is going to be a lasting thing. It was an inauguration, Francesca, from an alternate universe. And <laughs> and you know, if you've ever seen an inauguration before, you're used to the pictures of hundreds of thousands of people spanning the National Mall and this, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat, this very celebratory affair. And, and this was the exact polar opposite of that. It was militarized. There were thousands, even several tens of thousands of law enforcement officials, National Guardsmen, troops armed in fatigues and camouflage. and. To even just get access to the Capitol grounds took an incredible amount of time relative to what we're normally used to. And there were three distinct perimeters of security. When I tried to get in, I think I counted nine different checkpoints or times where I was stopped to have my ID checked or be escorted somewhere before you could actually access the area where the inauguration was taking place. And that's just a start. So you're saying it was possible to secure the Capitol. Is that what I'm hearing from you? That we you have it in correctly. our capacity as a nation to do that. Cool, 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 cool. <laughs> <laughs> just yeah, want to make sure. And it was it was just you know so incredible to be there and, and see with your own eyes how that was all taking place just two weeks removed from yeah. The attack on the US Capitol. So there we are in the same place where two weeks before everything, I mean, it looked like, you know, sort of the, the end of democracy was, was, was near in the eyes of the people who were experiencing the attack. And yet two weeks later, despite all of this militarization, despite all the security that was in place, there was this oasis of democracy that did exist on the west side of the Capitol where you had Joe Biden standing to be inaugurated president. And in great contrast to that scene that we're so used to with all the people there witnessing in person the inauguration. This is more like a big wedding, okay? There were only, you could count people in the hundreds, not the thousands or the hundreds of thousands. It was as intimate a presidential inauguration as we've ever had in modern history and probably since the dawn of the country. Wow, it must have felt even, First of all, let me just say it would have been bizarre anyway because there is a virus ripping through our country still. And so that was already a layer of surreality. And now we have this other thing that is put, I'm sure, put everyone on edge. I had a question because there, you know, there weren't very many people in the audience. There were just, it was a lot of press. Was it weird for you as a someone covering the inauguration to feel obligated to clap? Like, did you, you know, because there weren't there any people to like cheer and go crazy. And I was like, you know, there, there's only so many kids that Biden has. Bernie's not gonna clap. So like, <laughs> was that a weird thing? Am I am I just reading into the fact that the sometimes press feels put upon to actually like put their hands together? Well, uh, us reporters, I mean, uh, be, being the bastions of neutrality in those situations <laughs> that we are, we we sit there, we do our jobs, we don't clap or root for anyone one way or another. Uh, but there were plenty of people there who uh, who you know, of the few who were able to attend, who of course uh, were overjoyed uh, to be there. And it was notable too because it wasn't just all Democrats. There were there were at least a, a, a 
a notable minority of Republicans who were there, whether it was Christy Nome, the governor of South Dakota, or Ted Cruz, some of the national names that people would definitely recognize. They were there, they were present. Mike Pence, the outgoing vice president, he was present. And Donald Trump was really the one who was notable for not being there, although he wasn't very much missed by anyone in the crowd. But all that being said, it it was just so strange when Joe Biden began speaking, where after all the noise, after all the chaos, after the weeks of sirens and and just discomfort and and ill ease all throughout Washington D.C., I'll never forget the moment where it was just before he began his inaugural address, and I swear, if somebody shouted from half a mile away, you could have heard it. It was that quiet. It was that silent. And uh, you know, I mean, and Jill's just thinking of it uh, because yeah. it was a moment where it just seemed like all of that anger and all the the maelstrom that took place uh, just subsided, even if it was for a brief period of time. Yeah, for sure. And and if Trump had been there, he would have yelled out fake news. So I'm glad that he decided to stay away. Um, I, and you know, look, I think. We we think about what's happened since and the idea that we're safe now. There have been three, at least three attempts to break through security around the Capitol since January 6th with people who have had weapons, right. tried to pose as either reporters or like officials or someone in the Biden cabinet, you know. Um, Facebook is a real radicalization weapon right now. But I want to talk about the inauguration in a different light, right? You, um, you've covered, you know, dark money and donations and sort of where, um, you know, the amount of lobbying that happens in DC. And it turns out that this inaugural event, even though it was so um, slimly attended for security reasons, also raised a lot of money, not unlike. Um, Trump's inauguration in 2017, which actually has multiple criminal cases and civil cases out because of the potential misuse of funds that were raised during it. What? T- tell us more about um, this time around and and Joe Biden's inauguration. Well, to back up just 20 seconds uh, to uh, to hit your point about the Trump uh, inauguration. Yeah. Uh, that was the most money that had ever been raised for an inauguration for all the festivities that take place around the put your hand on the Bible and, and swear the oath of office a part of the inauguration. The breakfast, the lunches, the dinners, the fundraisers, the balls, all the trappings that go before and after the inauguration is what that money pays for. More than $100 million raised during the Trump inaugural for that type of activity. So the big question, of course, with Joe Biden's inauguration was, well, we've got COVID. We've got all these security issues. Why would you even need to raise money? And I think we saw the answer to that in the national TV special that took place, especially after the inauguration, when Katy Perry is singing firework as fireworks are literally going off over the <laughs> National Mall and whatnot. And Tom Hanks is narrating it and John Legend is singing and so on and so forth. So we've been tracking the money, we've been following the money. We know at least some amount and have been reported, have been able to report about some of the corporations that have donated money to the Biden inaugural. There will be a full accounting of that that has to be provided by federal law in about 90 days. So we will get more information. But the spending of all that money that's coming in, where that money is going, who's making money off of the ostensibly very large payments that were made in order to 
hold this affair and hold the celebration. The Biden inaugural committee refuses to comment on that. So mm. we've done some reporting around that. We are also planning on having a story in the coming days that's going to provide more details. But Joe Biden likes to talk about transparency. His inaugural committee, even on its website, said, hey, we're committed to transparency, but they have not been as transparent as they could be if they wanted to volunteer more information that goes above and beyond the letter of the law for what they have to legally put out and be transparent about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's fascinating to I think a lot of us who are unclear that, you know, inaugural events even even raise money. We're even about that. I mean, it makes sense to put them on, but that there would be extra cash left over, I think is a little bit of a head scratcher. I you do write about some of the corporations like you said that we know, tech companies like Microsoft, but that he is actually refusing to accept lobbying money right now or at least the inaugural committee didn't accept money from fossil fuel industries and such. So do you think there's maybe a, a turn there is a little bit of a, a, a nod to more progressive principles <laughs> in his in that decision? Uh, yes and no. And uh, you're right, Joe Biden has said, no, I'm not going to take money for my inauguration from registered federal lobbyists. Okay, so so he decided not to do that. But he also was willing, for example, to take $1 million from Boeing, a defense contractor, the aerospace giant. So uh, corporate money that was coming in. So the Biden administration or the Biden inaugural could have rejected corporate money as Obama's first inauguration did when Joe Biden, of course, was inaugurated as vice president. He could have stopped taking money from unions or other entities, chose not to. So that was his decision to make. And if Congress wanted to pass another law or do something to just for all inaugurations, change the rules of the game, they could, but they have not yet. Um. Good to know, Dave. Dave Leventhal of Business Insider, senior Washington correspondent, has been writing all this great stuff about the inauguration, what it was like to be there, and then the money behind it. And and I'm so glad you're following the money. I'm have hope, very small hope that maybe one day we'll get rid of dark money in Washington. I'm not holding my breath, but with reporters like you, we can get close. So thank you, and be very well. I appreciate it and thank you, Francesca.